Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Stuart Davies to the show. Stuart's focus is on driving growth and profitability at ORPC through overseeing the commercial rollout of the company's demonstrated and proven technology in the U.S., Canada, and Chile. Prior to becoming CEO of ORPC in early 2020, Stuart was an investor in early-stage companies with a primary focus on companies with products and services that either reduced carbon emissions or improved the health of the environment. Stuart, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Raj. Thank you so much for inviting me to this. Stuart, thank you for being on, and I'm excited to speak to you. Stuart, where are you currently located? Um, right now, I'm in a suburb of uh, Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, obviously our, our company is in Portland, Maine, but due to the current pandemic, uh, Maine and Massachusetts are not allowing intraday travel anymore, so uh, I had been going up uh, you know, three or four days a week, but uh, now we're quarantined and the uh, border is closed, so I'm working remotely. Well, I trust you and your family are safe and well. So far, so good. Uh, we've had a few scares with uh, three, you know, two college, two college kids, and someone just out of college. But we've so far been okay. You know, they're calling the college kids super spreaders. Um, actually, our our guys have been really careful uh, during this whole thing. So I, I I give them credit. They've been uh, they they've been really good, and uh, I think it was really hard. Uh, April through you know March through June, uh, we had. My wife and I thought we were going to be empty nesters, and we wound up uh, having five. You know, <laughs> so a little, little change. So uh, up that grocery shopping, right? Yes, my uh, my two boys are both about six four and two hundred and thirty pounds. So yes, the grocery bill was a lot bigger than normal. Wow. Well, Stuart, I like to open the show by asking my guest the following question: If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? So I've heard you ask this question to other guests, and most have given such great, interesting answers and have set a really high bar, um, which I probably won't achieve. But I decided to go for something a bit more random. But I would say that I am someone who enjoys pulling a harmless prank or being on the receiving end of one, especially around the holidays, which as I was thinking about the podcast here over the Thanksgiving break, that's what made me think of this topic. So couple of examples. Uh, once during the middle of a large holiday party, I converted the host's elegant bathroom into a Frosty the Snowman themed room complete with area rugs, toilet seat covers, and themed Kleenex boxes in about three minutes. Uh, another time I stuck an eight foot inflatable snowman into a friend's front, re- front yard while they were out to dinner and had it peering through their front window when they came home. And uh, <laughs> if I walk up to your holiday tree commenting on how nice your ornaments are. That probably means I'm in the process of leaving a cheesy ornament with hanging on it with a picture of my wife and me that you'll find at the end of the holiday season when you're taking the tree down. I I love that, especially around the holiday time. So um, my brother used to live in a home and he used to have those deer out front, you know, the ones that have lights on them. 
And every year, a good friend of mine and I would go to his house and move those things around, usually around around Christmas Eve. And there were a couple of times where my brother just got so tired of it. He, you know, he would complain to us the day after, I can't believe these kids came to my house, da, da, da. And we probably did it for about eight years in a row until he moved. And he didn't ever realize that it was us doing it. And I don't think he still knows. So there you go. Well, it was good. My old employer was, it was good give and take. So on the receiving end, I've had my office wrapped completely in tinfoil. And that was because I stuffed someone's overhead cabinets with a couple hundred ping pong balls. And then I've had, <laughs> I've had fat heads of me that were, that are like life-size posters of me as a high school basketball player covering the hallways of the office. I showed up one morning to that, but, um, probably my best prank. And I sent you this picture, which was the rant, you know, in, in preparation for this, but, uh, a mentor of mine was uh, going away. She was leaving Sankety Advisors to teach at Harvard Business School. And and our firm name, Sankety, was named after the Sankety Lighthouse on Nantucket. So I found a guy who could make a six-foot-tall replica of the lighthouse. I set it up in her office and created a beach scene around it using 25 boxes of Rice Krispies for sand, miniature beach balls, and a fog machine. I brought a fog machine for special effects because if you have a lighthouse, you need fog. And unfortunately, the fog machine actually set off the smoke alarm in the tallest building in downtown Boston. So I <laughs> immediately, I was immediately on the phone explaining to building security and to stop sending the fire department. There was no fire. So it was a good life lesson and unintended consequences as well. Knock on effect. I love that, though. I think I think we're kind of losing some of those, you know, practical joke moments, um, especially in, in schools. I Like I mentioned earlier, I have three young ones and um, they're they're so bound to you know staying within the rules and even a little gag or prank out of order gets them sent to the principal's office so i i look forward to maybe perhaps continuing that as they get older and out of school yeah it's it uh it's certainly that's that's certainly the case it uh but anyway it's a good uh it's a good stress reliever so uh i agree you know, i haven't uh you know being on uh remote i haven't had the opportunity to be up to my usual tricks at orpc but uh hopefully that will happen soon <laughs> well, speaking of ORPC, can you give the audience an overview of the organization and your role? Um, sure. So the Ocean Renewable Power Company, or ORPC, uh, uses power from free-flowing rivers and tides to provide sustainable energy solutions. We're headquartered in Portland, Maine. Uh, we have 28 employees in Portland, Montreal, Dublin, Anchorage, and Seattle. And our mission is to provide 100% renewable energy solution to off-grid communities. So our first target markets are mostly indigenous communities and ecotourism facilities in Alaska, northern Canada, and Patagonia, Chile. This is about a $15 billion market, actually, and, and globally, about a billion people live either without electricity or use noisy, polluting diesel generators to produce electricity, which creates not only a high level of CO2 per kilowatt hour as well, but numerous carcinogens. Um, if you look at the global carbon emission picture through 2100, uh, the biggest increase in emissions will come from developing economies. So the most urgent priority is to reach these markets first with sustainable local renewable energy options and provide them with economic incentives to adopt these solutions now. And ORPC has invented some of the lowest emission producing renewable energy systems around. And if we can get our products to these markets, it will be the equivalent of taking 350 million cars off the road. So we're just moving into commercialization of our technology. And our first commercial power system is in one of those places now. It's the remote village of Igiagig, Alaska. It'll be a spell, spelling test for your uh, your listeners. 
Our RivGen system has been sending energy to its community grid for about 14 months, which is longer than any other hydrokinetic device in North America. And we're displacing diesel fuel, which the village has to actually fly in uh, at an exorbitant price, which risks the health of the river they're on, which is called the Kvijak River. And uh, it was in the news recently about the pebble mine, um, but it's known for its largest sockeye salmon migration in the world. So next summer, we're going to install our second RibGen device, a battery storage system and a smart microgrid control system. And that's going to enable the village to move off their diesel generators or move them to backup power rolls. So our renewable energy solution will result in a 90% reduction in diesel use and CO2 emissions. So we're hoping to take that as a model project and, and take that around the world. So can you share perhaps just an idea of what they were paying and what they will be paying going forward for energy? So there's there's subsidies in place, but if you work through, you know, unsubsidized, it's about 92 cents a kilowatt hour and your average American pays about 13 cents. So, you know, and, and if you look at the communities that we're targeting in Canada, Alaska and Chile, they pay between 40 cents a kilowatt hour and we've seen as high as $1.40 a kilowatt hour. So in terms of there, there's a lot of discussion of energy equality, you know, we're we're addressing the need on a re- with a renewable solution to to communities that are paying some of the you know highest percentages of their families' income, you know, in the world. And in addition, these communities are getting hardest hit. If you look at where climate change is impacting communities the most, you know, mo- the the largest part of the the temperature increase is is coming at the at the North Pole. And you mentioned you mentioned fish earlier, and I'm going to guess that fish and wildlife are a big part of, you know, these people's lives. How does your unit, you know, does it damage wildlife? How does it work? So it does not impede the river in any way. Um, And there's room, our our turbine is just not rotating that quickly. Uh, My analogy is, it's kind of like watching a, you know, eight-year-old bike, you know, ride a bicycle up a steep hill. It's just not moving that fast. And so, um, uh, but we've had over a million fish interactions with our device. Uh, we've done 12 different deployments in our history, and, and we've documented over a million fish interactions, and we've had no recorded fish injuries or, or, or fish mortality. So, you know, we're, we have cameras on our device, and we were supposed to have inspectors on the ground to watch the smolt, uh, which are baby fish, the out-migration out of uh, Lake Iliamna last spring. And then as the adult sockeye salmon came back, we were supposed to have you know, monitors there, but just given COVID, uh, we weren't, weren't able to get people there. So we actually, we actually were, uh, did not operate or, you know, during that time, but, but next season we're kind of geared up and hoping, hoping to have everyone there. Now, I believe you said the RivGen system has been operating for 14 months. What were some of the challenges getting the system approved and installed? So there's a variety of permits, uh, that are required. You know, you have to get approval from, you know, uh, uh, you need a FERC license, you need, you know, fish and wildlife. So there's a, there's a, there's a maze of, you know, regulatory and environmental permitting that you need to get done. And I think that's one of the strengths of our team. You know, we've done these 12 deployments. We have a dedicated staff who's, who's focused on not only addressing this, these, these issues to get individual improve, um, approvals, but also to, to work with regulators to simplify the process for, for you know, approvals going forward. And how were the conversations with the indigenous people that you're helping up there? Um, you know, I think the, the, 
our project in Igiagig would not be successful without um, the the engagement of that community and the leadership of Alexana Salmon, um, who is the is the head of the the village and her team. Um, we have a weekly call with them. Um, any issue that comes up, um, we work with them. Uh, you know, on a on a we have a great working relationship to resolve uh, any issues. And you know, for example, we were able to get our two people um, on the ground. You know, despite uh, you know COVID, and 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 have them quarantined properly, and we we're able to work on the device with some of the community members. Um, you know, they 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 brought their local knowledge, and and we've trained them on how to how to maintain our device. And we hope to just have them do that hundred percent of the time going forward, but just a great relationship to make sure um, we were able to bring it up and inspect it and, and put it back down um, here last uh, August and September, you know, with no, no, no problem in terms of, of COVID. And that's obviously a, a really uh, high degree. There's a, there's a high degree of concern around that in, in these communities. So we were able to do that successfully. And again, there's always, you know, little issues that come up along the way, and they've just been a, a great partner all the way along, all the entire time. So you touched on it briefly there. My next question was going to be about partnerships from an employment standpoint. Is the model to deploy the unit into an area and then have the indigenous people part of, I guess, the solution of working on the unit? That's right. So the the uh, the, the the unit is designed to for a 20, 30 year life. And if you look at it, it, it sits on a pontoon boat effectively and uh, I'll oversimplify, but you push a button and, and one pontoon and then the other pontoon f- fills with water and it sinks to the bottom and, and then you turn it on. And if you want to bring it back up, um, you ju- we just, you know, hit another button and, and we blow the water out and, and put compressed air into the, into the pontoon and bring it back to the surface. So, it makes it very easy um, to to do maintenance, and it's um, we've designed. We've been at this since two thousand four, so we've de- designed a very safe system to pull up a small boat, um, you know, d- to dock it onto the, the device, and there's a walkway with a railing for you to do work. And so, the, the idea is that you know these remote communities are challenging to get to, um, and you know, they, uh, there's a real opportunity for job creation around, there's, there's not much, you know, we're, we're not ex- anticipating a lot of maintenance, uh, you know, or, you know, kind of every five years, you know, bring it to the surface, but there, you know, for these first 10 or 20 units, there'll be annual inspections where we'll, we'll work with the communities to bring that up and, and have their, um, have their local residents, you know, trained to do that work. And then obviously when we're deploying it, um, you know, we, again, over half of the people involved with the project, and we would in- anticipate that going forward to, to even have a higher percentage of that, where we're working with the local community to assemble the device, you know, in the in assembly area, you know, push it out into the water and set the anchor and then and set it down. So there's a lot of local job creation that we can do there as well. So does the unit stay in the same place or does it go upriver, downriver? Does it move at all? No, it's it's anchored in place, and it's uh, you know it's it's the, these these rivers are moving, uh, you know, ten feet a second type of thing. So it's it's obviously a very challenging environment to operate in. But it's um, we have an anchoring and, and mooring system that uh, it sets sits down on the bottom, but there's an anchor kind of set upstream from it that that holds it in place. Now it might be a little bit technical for the audience, but I'm really curious as to some of the sensors or you know any kind of intelligence that you're using on the unit. 
Um, I won't get into it in, in too much detail, but we have a we have a, a range of health and wellness um, uh, data that we that we get from the device. So we can, and again, as I mentioned, we have cameras there as well, so we can we can capture images of how it's doing. And you know, we have some videos on our website, but the water in the Kvijak is is so clear; they actually drink the water straight out of the river. Um, so um, you know, we get some very clear camera pictures, but there's a lot of um, data on um, you know, rotational speed and, um, um, you know, water temperature, water speed, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, yeah, we have a lot of data collection that happens. So earlier this year, you testified in front of Congress. Um, can you share what that was about and perhaps some of the opportunities you explained to the government? So I think where, uh, the river and tidal industries are, and broadly, they're called hydrokinetics or MHK uh, is the acronym. I just call it river and tidal. But where those are, we're, we're where um, wind and solar were about 10 years ago. So there's probably six or seven companies now that have had a device that has been installed and operated for six months or longer. I think we're the longest in North America at 14 consecutive months. But if you think about where wind and solar were 10 years ago, they've, they've proven out they could operate for a long period of time. They've proven out they could generate power. And then it was really this, you know, the design was in place and you were, they, there's further, there's been further refinement to the design, but then it's been a real um, kind of virtuous cycle over the last 10 years of, of building more and installing more devices, which has driven the cost down at the same time. And it's also gotten a lot of manufacturers interested in participating in that supply chain, which has then accelerated redesigns and, and further cost reduction. So if you look at wind 10 years ago versus today, I believe costs have come down about 70%. For solar, it's come down about 90%. So I really think our industry is at a position where, and, and we're in this position, we have a design, we feel like it works. We actually have kind of a near-term plan where Again, we, we think we're going to drive output on a given device up 40 or 50% here in the next you know 12 or 18 months just with the, the um, modeling we've been doing uh, around software of and, and what we've learned on drag and from this first deployment. Um, and then also, you know we've, we've had initial conversations with our supply chain to say, okay, if we were making 10 of these devices at a time instead of one, what would our costs come down? And, and the initial indications are, you know, at least 25 or 30%. And then I would point out that, you know, when we call 10 people to make a part, when you're only making one, you only have kind of one or two companies come back and bid on it. So there's these, we're also in the process of reaching out to those other eight companies to say, okay, you know, we're going to make five or 10 of these here in the next year. Do you want to bid on this, you know, on this part? And the nice thing about our technology, when you look at it is, most of the pieces on there look like auto parts or, you know, in, in um, agricultural equipment parts, et cetera. So really the conversation that I had with the Senate and, and what we wanted to kind of get out there um, for congressional leaders to understand is where the state of the industry is and that what the industry needs support in is really putting devices in the water here over the next two to three years so we can start that same virtuous cycle that that wind and solar saw over the last 10 years. Now, North America project, I understand, just because of local and geography. Why Chile? So, um, you know, Patagonia is, um, so if you think about our initial target markets, these are off-grid off communities. Um, 
you know, I'm not looking, ORPC is not looking to compete with wind and solar. Um, you know, we're, we're too expensive, right? If you want to be on the grid today, you're going to need to be at, you know, five or seven cents a kilowatt hour. And, and, you know, it's going to take us a few years to get down that curve. So these off-grid communities have the highest, uh, power costs in the world. Um, and, if you think about Patagonia as well as um, you know northern Alaska and northern Canada, solar has a ch- tough challenge competing with us because four months out of the year they're getting less than six hours of daylight a day, and then you know that we had mentioned we'd been operating for fourteen months. You know during the winter we had temperatures that you know got below negative forty degrees, and so that's a real challenging environment for historically has, you know, for, for, for smaller wind installations with, with icing, you know, you get, it's 30 degrees and snowing and and then you get kind of ice buildup on the, on the device. And then it, and then it, you know, drops to, you know, minus 30 and you have cracking and, and things of that nature. So there's, you know, we feel like these markets are on the one hand, very challenging to, uh, to operate in, but we have designed a device that works there. Appreciate that. I'm going to switch gears here and get to the crux of our conversation, which is the why behind what you do. Now, in my research, I came across an article. You know, you're you're an investor in the company, um, but you have quite a you know a varied background. You took over the helm, I think, January of this year. What's your why? Why why did you decide to perhaps you know start with invest in this company? And you know what motivates you? What keeps you going? Sure. So yeah, a little bit on my background. So I joined uh, Sankety Advisors. I mentioned that in the Lighthouse, and it's a division of Bain Capital. I joined there in 1999. And at the time, our group had 10 people. We were in a small, cramped office in Boston and had under a billion dollars in assets under management. And I was there for 17 years. And when I left, we were managing you know 35 billion and had 240 people on four continents. And I was part of the leadership team that was responsible for the for that growth and. And honestly, I'm I'm proud of what we accomplished there. But I I decided I, w- I wanted to have a second act uh, to my business career. And so um, in my investment career, I, I it was great. I, I was involved in lots of different industries and company sizes. So I'd worked with large companies and small companies. I invested in debt. I invested in equity, different industries, you know, metals and mining, energy, food, retail, consumer products. Um, was on the boards of you know over twenty companies on that time, so really involved with with you know strategy and 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 direction the companies were going. But I never really worked with startups. So um, when I left in twenty sixteen, I I kind of focused my energies on early stage companies, and I was really just focused on ones that had a strong corporate mission. And so I happened to uh, have a, a mutual uh, friend of Chris Sauer, who was the founder of ORPC. And I started working with him and coming up to Portland, uh, you know, a, a few days a month and working with the company and meeting the team. And, and last December, Chris decided to retire and asked me if I wanted to be CEO. And, um, you know, while I'd, uh, you know, had a leadership role at Sankety, I'd never, you know, sat in the CEO seat. So I uh, thought it was, I mean, I just love the company's mission. Um, and, I, you know, to me, uh, as I think about all the companies I've looked at and invested over my career, I think ORPC might have the single best corporate mission of any company I've come across. When you think about it, you know, we're bringing renewable energy to indigenous communities and communities of color around the world who either currently have no access to power or pay five to ten times what the average American pays for electricity. And in the process, we're creating some of the, you know, th- those what they're using for generation is cr- is is. Uh, for electricity is generating some of the highest uh, CO2 emissions on earth. So we're bringing 
sustainable, affordable energy that's predictable and taking their diesel generators offline at the same time. So right there on your website, it says improving people's lives and their environment through sustainable energy solutions. It's a very strong corporate mission. Why is a strong corporate mission important to you? Um, look, I mean, I think as you haven't covered the, uh, the energy space, uh, you know, and, and other companies, you know, you see, um, all the plastic waste building up in the oceans, you see, um, you know, the path we're on, on carbon emissions. And it just, for me, it's, it, you know, as, as you think about what you want to leave behind, um, you know, for me, it was like, okay, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not someone who's going to invent, you know the, the the next next thing. I'm a I'm a finance guy, right? <laughs> Economics major. I'm not an engineer, um, but I, I felt like I could bring skill sets on you know how to how to develop and grow a business. And so, for me, you know, I want to look back on my career and say, okay, you know, I I, I helped this company, uh, you know, grow and accomplish this mission, and and you know that it was it was having a positive impact on on the environment and the the world we're leaving behind for our kids and grandkids. So you've been in this seat about a year now. What are some of the most valuable lessons now that you're in charge that you've learned? I think the number one lesson is don't take over the CEO role of a company two months before a global pandemic hits. <laughs> um, you know, uh, you know, seriously, I, I've learned that I, I actually I have an amazing team at ORPC. Uh, we successfully, successfully and seamlessly closed the office and transitioned to remote operations in March in, you know, just a matter of days. You know, I think without any direction from me, the team developed this 10 a.m. daily coffee chat for employees to drop in and talk about, you know, water cooler topics virtually. And I know that sounds like a small thing, but it was, you know, during the dark days of April and May, I think it was a, just a real positive thing that people looked forward to every day. Um, and then they also came up with a Thursday teaching session where, you know, someone in the firm spends 30 minutes taking the entire company through what they've been working on. And this has been a great way to maintain, you know, the connectivity of the, of the team. And then also, but also help the team keep informed about, you know, we have a lot of innovation and a lot of interesting projects we're working on. So, keeping everybody informed about that. And so, you know, also we've been able to reopen the office here coming uh, both in Maine and Montreal. And, and we've been able to, as I mentioned, you know, successfully maintain operations in Igiagig, Alaska, which, which is, which was really important to, you know, not only the, the success of the project, but the, the success of the company. So, you know, despite coronavirus, you know, I believe we've accomplished a lot and, you know, we're super excited about what lies ahead. And, but coming back to your original question, I, you know, you learn, what have I learned? I've learned a lot about the people. I, I, I think you learn a lot about people you work with in a crisis. And I've learned, you know, I work with an amazing group of people every day and that's why I'm just excited. I took the job and because we were talking earlier, it's, you know, it gets me jumping out of bed every morning. Well, that's good to hear. So speaking of what lies ahead, it's 2030. ORPC, you say you're a strategy guy, ideal, magic wand. How many units have you deployed in what parts of the world? Um, so it's an interesting it's an interesting question just in terms of the path. I mean, I, I say to people all the time, I'm not worried about how quickly we'll deploy units 50 to 500. It's it's really getting people to adopt those first 50 because the the market is actually enormous when you think about those billion people without um, either don't have power, or they're using diesel generators. A lot of them live near uh, tidal and river locations. So, um, you know, we just took a 
a small slice. If you said 1% of that population would meet our criteria, you know, that's like a $400 billion market. So it's just kind of, it's hard to fathom. And, you know, we have these conversations with people who come across our website, like our technology and, you know, they want to order a hundred devices, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a challenging question, but my, my hope would be um, by 2030 that, you know, we would be in 15 or 20 countries and have a multitude of projects going there. So, and just, just a lot of momentum in the business and a, in a, in a market adoption, um, that, you know, that people that accepted the technology and were, um, it was in their everyday, you know, calculus in terms of coming up with a a hundred percent renewable solution. And I, and, you know, my view is, you know, my, my vision would be, uh, as people are thinking about this, you know, if you look, I, I was in an interesting, I sat through an interesting, uh, presentation where it was the CEOs of the leading solar and wind and hydropower companies in the U.S. And their forecast for 2030 was we would get to 50% of the electricity demand by 2030. Um, and that assumed an 85-fold increase in battery. And you, you asked me earlier, I mean, one of the reasons I was attracted to ORPC is I feel like we need a third leg of the, of the stool or the platform, if you will, in addition to river and uh, in addition to wind and solar and river and tidal are different in that they are highly predictable. So they can be the base load resource um, to fully replace coal and natural gas. So to me, it's more of a, when you ask about 2035, to me, it's more of a vision where, you know, I see a vision where you'd say, okay, I'm going to use river and tidal for a third of my power needs, and that's the base load. And then I'm going to use wind, solar, and battery storage for that other two-thirds. And we have a a grid we can absolutely manage. Um, the intermittency can be handled with battery storage. And you have that, you know, river and tidal, renewable, predictable base load there, you know, really at the at the foundation of, of that. And I, you know, to me, that would be my 2035 vision. It's a beautiful vision. Um, question that came to mind when Chris started this company back in 2004, do you have any idea what his aha moment was and why he decided to start it? So, yeah, we've, we've had a couple beers over, over the, over the, over the, over the last couple years. And I think there was, um, there's a ocean current off the coast of Florida and there's, uh, you know, they're, they're throughout the world, but there's pretty good, pretty good p- uh, pace to that ocean current. And he originally, um, he and a couple other founders, you know, we're trying to figure out how do we harness that, uh, that ocean current energy, because that's obviously, you know, it's an underwater river, basically. So it's highly predictable. Um, and it's not too far off the, off the Florida coast. And so I think the idea there was, you know, could we build a device that could, you know, rest on the bottom of the ocean and generate power from that? So that was really the inspiration, um, behind the, behind the company. It's very interesting, you know, it's a 16-year journey and now you've taken over. I'm really looking forward to seeing what you do in the future. I'm very excited about your technology and all the opportunities out there. Well, great. I th- thank you and I appreciate that. Of course. So last question. If you could share some words of advice or wisdom with the audience, it could be professional or personal, what would it be? So um, it's another challenging question. I, I think... Between my time at, at, at Sankety and taking over CEO of ORPC, I've, I've met with a lot of entrepreneurs in a number of industries. And 
you know, I've even invested, you know, a few dollars here and there with, with a few of them. And, but what, what's been interesting to me, it's, it's um, one, it's been really invigorating. And then two, I think for your listeners who are, are maybe, you know, my age or, you know, in their forties or older, you know, you know, I would encourage them to find ways to engage with, with entrepreneurs in areas that interest, interest them. So I, when I left Bain Capital in 2016, I just had coffees and breakfasts with whoever, you know, if you recommended that I grab coffee with someone, you know, I did that. And I, I talked to a lot of young entrepreneurs and met with them. And what I found is, um, you know, I, this, and this is why I would encourage people to engage in this. Is, is like you, you have a lot to offer to uh, to a young uh, CEO um, or entrepreneur. You know, you can bring a lot of advice. You have a network of connections that you can bring to really help these companies prosper. It was amazing how many times in these, you know, breakfasts or lunches or coffees where, you know, they would say, look, I'm, I'm trying to find someone who, you know, has experience with this. And I'd be like, oh, well, I, you know, I coach soccer with someone who does that. And, and, you know, let me put you in touch with them. So if I look back over the last 20 years, you know, these entrepreneurial companies are the real job creators in the economy, but as great as the U.S. is at, developing these companies, I, I actually even think we could do a better job and accelerate the advancement of a lot more of these companies if, if they had the access to the expertise, talent, and networks of, you know, my fellow Gen Xers, um, you know, who, who and, and in return, I think they'd get a lot of personal satisfaction out of, out of helping some of these companies make it. That resonates very strongly with me. I've been mentoring and kind of guiding tech startups here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area for about five or six years and i used to have a um three coffees a week three new people a week no transaction no agenda let's just have a conversation figure out where we are in life and what i found more often than not is that you know from a common denominator standpoint we find out that we we all have similar wants and needs but the the opportunity to guide like you said a young entrepreneur or young ceo and tell them that you know perhaps you don't have to have the, all the answers right now or whatever that might be i think is very helpful i would agree so it's great to hear you're doing that. Once COVID's over, I look forward to getting back to it. So, Stuart, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Again, I'm genuinely super interested in what you're doing. I think there's a phenomenal opportunity out there. Before we go, is there anything else you'd like to share or something I didn't ask you that perhaps you'd like to answer? No, I mean, I think we I think we covered it. I mean, I think the the, the one thing maybe I would touch on is, you know, what's, what's been surprising to me is... Um, how the conversation is so focused on the monetary cost of, you know, cost per megawatt hour for electricity, as opposed to all the negative externalities that are out there. And, and, you know, I, I, I get in these meetings and I scratch my head where on the one hand, everyone in the meeting says, uh, you know, I believe in the client climate science and the climate science says we have, you know, eight to 12 years to reduce our carbon emissions, or we're going to have irreversible changes so to me, if if the goal is to eliminate CO two emissions, you know, shouldn't we be adopting energy solutions that have the lowest life cycle CO two emissions of anything out there? And I just, it's amazing to me how you know the utility industry and the fossil fuel industry just dominates that conversation and controls the narrative. And I think you know, uh, you know, I was I was, I was uh, talking to my family about this. I listened to a a recent uh, attended a recent webinar where a Yale professor was talking about sea level rise and that you know he was mentioning that if Greenland's ice caps melt you know the sea levels go up 50 feet um and if Antarctica melts it's 200 feet and then 
you know, two days later, I read that, you know, the Greenland, he's like, but, you know, it's not melting that bad. And then it was like, you know, two weeks later, <laughs> there's the report that, you know, Greenland's ice caps are melting, you know, five times the rate as, as we thought they were. And it's, you know, to me, it's like, okay, if, if you do any kind of math and you say, okay, sea levels rise 10 feet, you know, 20 to 50 million Americans are going to have to relocate, right? So, or, or more. So, you know, what's the, what's the cost of that? And I think there's this assumption that, you know, the do nothing case is the worst case scenario for the outcome of our, our path here on emissions and that, you know, we could get to the Paris agreement or better. And I look at it and say, you know, the world is full of, you know, four or five and six Sigma events. I mean, in my investment career, we used to do, you know, this, uh, you know, decision tree analysis where you'd probability await, you know, put weighted probabilities to these, you know, low, you know, less than 1%, but high severity type of events. And it, and it skews how you look at the world. And I think that's really been ignored in this dialogue. And it, you know, I, and I look at the, I mean, look at what coronavirus has done to emissions, right? We just had a, you know, what we're going to have like an eight or 9% drop globally. That's kind of a six sigma event that, you know, was unplanned. Well, we could have one that's the other way and it could be devastating. So I, I, I think there's a, this narrative uh, needs to, I don't know, the, the discussion around what's the true cost and what's the measure of it, I, I believe really needs to change. So I agree strongly. And so two things you said, you know, the coronavirus, there you go, low probability, high severity. There, There's one right there. And um, the conversation around externalities, it's been coming up a lot recently. And, uh, you know, with guests and among my peer group too, I, I had a guest, uh, I think, few weeks ago and we were talking about the externalities in the food system for example so the conversation started with you know the processed foods that have been happening for the last 30 40 years and the healthcare system now bearing the brunt of that and the individuals themselves but the food companies have not so to your point i think there's a lot there's a lot more conversations that need to be had and then obviously action taken taking these externalities under consideration you know you mentioned a rise in 10 feet there are several island nations that 10 feet will be devastating you know yes america parts of america but globally speaking it will cause you know tragedy and devastation and so i think those conversations need to be had more often louder and hopefully action taken too i agree Stuart, thank you again so much for your time today i really enjoyed speaking with you and i look forward to watching the growth of orpc and seeing what you do next well thank you for having uh me on and giving me the opportunity to tell our story so i appreciate it Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Happy holidays. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.